Last week, we covered a whole lot of ground as Peter, the church leader, proved his faithfulness to Jesus time and time again as he boldly preached the gospel in spite of the threats against his life coming from, remember, the same exact men who, who, murdered, who handed Jesus over to be executed just months earlier. In moments where we had previously seen Peter shrink back or get it wrong or misinterpret everything, Peter is proving to be exactly who Jesus called him to be. But this boldness comes at a cost, and we finished our time together last Sunday with the story of the church's first martyr, Stephen. The religious leaders were losing power and influence in Rome, and Rome itself was also getting pretty nervous about this new movement that they were simply referring to as the way. And these followers of the way, they were starting to be persecuted for their faith and for preaching Jesus. And so last week, after Stephen is stoned to death, we ended with one final verse in Acts 8.1. And Saul approved of his execution. Now, this is a sermon series about the Apostle Peter, so we won't spend a lot of time on Saul, but let me highlight some things about this very evil persecutor of Christians. So, first thing, Saul of Tarsus. He was born in 5 AD in the city of Tarsus. This is modern-day Turkey. He was born to Jewish parents who possessed Roman citizenship, and that was a privilege their son would also possess. In about 10 AD, Saul's family moved to Jerusalem. Not that it matters a whole lot to us, but a lot of scholars have serious debate over this, about where he was raised and his birthplace being Tarsus when he moved. Um, but if we read his own comments in Acts 22.3, it would indicate that Jerusalem is his childhood home. Why does that matter? Again, to us today, that doesn't make, that doesn't impact us a lot, but a lot of scholars want to debate this. And so it reminded me of like President Abraham Lincoln, because there are three states who claim Lincoln. Kentucky, we're like, uh, 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 he was born here. You cross the river into Indiana and they literally say Lincoln's boyhood home. They want you to know where he got all those values and it was instilled in him and all of that. And then Illinois, who asked you? Illinois chimes in and says, we're the land of Lincoln because he spent three decades here. Okay, all right, let's all calm down a little bit. Does, does that actually impact what he accomplished as an adult? No. Moving on, Saul was born in Tarsus. He moved to Jerusalem at some point. Not a big deal, okay? Moving on. So sometime between 15 and 20 AD, Saul began his studies of the Hebrew scriptures in Jerusalem under a rabbi named Gamaliel. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Because from last week, Gamaliel... He was the rabbi that talked the rest of the Jewish Sanhedrin into not killing Peter and John, but to instead wait for Rome to do it themselves so they could keep their hands clean. And since Saul studied under Gamaliel, Saul was no doubt informed on all matters pertaining to these uneducated, unlearned fishermen and their new weird movement. It is also quite possible that Saul was present for the trial of Stephen. And as we've said, a trial that resulted in Stephen becoming the church's first 
martyr. And that is where we landed last week in Acts 8, 1, where Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Saul, for the time, would go on to ravage the church, entering homes of followers of the way and throwing them into prison. Saul's anti-Christian zeal motivated him not only to arrest and imprison male Christians, which he viewed as the ringleaders, but he would lock up the female believers as well. Later on, Acts records that Saul also threatened to kill Christians, and he actually had the authority to imprison any and all Christians that he wanted or he encountered. So this is a bad dude, right? Pretty bad guy. Now, the fallout from the stoning of Stephen, it was significant as it started a wave of persecution and most Christians fled the city. However, and this is really cool, it also had a paradoxical effect as Christians used Stephen's murder to galvanize one another and they actually began sending missionaries out to Judea and Samaria and this literally changed human history. It changed life on earth as we know it. And so as a byproduct of the stoning of Stephen, this mostly Jewish, Jerusalem-based community of Jesus followers became a multi-ethnic international movement. It changed everything. And while that was happening, there's a man named Philip. Well, he goes on mission into the hostile region of Samaria. And yet he finds incredible success while something unbelievable happens to our enemy, Saul. Remember that dude? Yeah, that bad guy? Well, on his way to Damascus to arrest and extradite Christians whom he was persecuting, uh, what followed was one of the most improbable conversions in church history. Saul of Tarsus became Paul. Over time, he became Paul. Eventually, the apostle Paul, who became a passionate missionary and faithful follower of Jesus, who would go on to face fierce persecution of his own. Now, honestly, Paul deserves his own sermon series because so much happens to him and for him in such a short amount of time and just simply who he was before Jesus and who he is after he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus is just so significant. It's so big. I give you all of this broader context now because it's important. It's going to give us insight into what happens to our flawed yet faithful friend, Peter. So moving forward into Acts chapter 10, you'll see this on the screen. We're going to pick up in verse 9. The Bible records, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. I don't know about you, but I read that, and it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies because it reminds me of Revelation a little bit. But moving on, verse 13. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. We'll pause right there. Okay, so Peter is seeing something 
like a sheet. And on the sheet coming down from heaven, they are four-footed animals, they are reptiles, they're birds. And God tells Peter to kill them and eat any of them or all of them. And Peter responds the way he does because his entire life, he has been a good, faithful Jewish man, observing all the dietary restrictions that Jews followed regarding clean and unclean animals. And so in this vision, unclean animals are present and God tells Peter, you can have any of these animals. And so to Peter, this violates his convictions. That's why he felt bold enough to tell God no, which I don't recommend. But he said, surely not. Like there's no way. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Okay, so as we hear this in our 2023 ears, this just simply must mean we can fully enjoy pork and ham and lobster, rabbit, crab, and all that stuff, right? There's nothing more. We can bring the band back up. We can close. Praise God for the new covenant. Amen. Now, while that, that is one way to understand this, that's not really the purpose of this at all. Because we already read this statement earlier, remember? This mostly Jewish, Jerusalem-based community of Jesus followers became a multi-ethnic international movement, Reflect on that statement for a second, because some within the movement, they were struggling with the idea that the way of Jesus could be for non-Jews. Many held that even though the Spirit of God is being poured out, many held that you must still first convert to Judaism, and then you could follow Jesus. And that is also why initially the Christian movement was believed to simply be another form of Judaism, but God gives Peter this radical vision that tells Peter there's none of that going on. There, there is no need to separate Jews and non-Jews. There's no need to follow the dietary restrictions and other elements of the law to become a follower of Jesus. Non-Jewish people, and that is you and I, by the way, we're commonly referred to as Gentiles in the Bible. We are not unclean. We are not impure. We are not unworthy. Instead, we are worthy of joining Jesus' family. Hence, God's words here, don't call impure something that God has purified. And that is the good news to us, that while we sin and we fall short and, and we mess up, we screw up, we stumble and fall, we are flawed beyond belief. God still sent Jesus to die for those sins, to die for you, so that we could experience new life and we could experience eternal life. Jesus did what we can't. He lived that perfect life and then he then conquered death. He, he, he rose again, not because the world needed a new form of Judaism or honestly a new religion, but because the world needed saving. And so the vision that God gave Peter can be summed up this way. These are my words. The way of Jesus is for all people in all situations, at all times. Those arms are open for all people in all situations at all times. Now, maybe a question arises inside of you. Well, so, so who gets this sort of love? I'm just making it simple for you. Everybody. Okay, but come on, like there's a limit. I love my kids, but I got my limit. How often? 
always. That invitation is always offered to all people. The gift of Jesus is offered to everybody always. Let's, let's not get this wrong. Let's not get this backwards. There's no pure or impure people, just the Father's kids. There's no reason to divide ourselves and develop an identity, especially on secondary issues. But it comes down to, do you follow Jesus? Yes. That's amazing news. Incredible news. Or, do you follow Jesus? No, I don't. Okay, could I share about his love for just a moment? Can I tell you about what he's done in my life? Could I pray for you in this moment? This is a true story. I was, I was leading a small group in a, in a public place once, which is always dangerous. I had these people all of a sudden start circling, and I kid you not, I didn't know their intent or anything, but I thought, man, this reminds me of sharks. That should have told me. But I'm leading this, this youth small group as, as this youth pastor, and once we pray, they just sit down. Hey, okay, yeah, yeah, let's talk, let's talk. And their opening question was, you know, uh, well, what, what, what church do you go to? And, and we told them it was the vineyard. Okay, well, what's something you think we disagree about? Just starting it off immediately. And so it, it, just, it, just, it just kind of has some venom to it, right? It, it, it has a very different approach when let's just make this about Jesus and we'll figure it out as we go. Let's not build a faith on these secondary issues about, well, when do you baptize and, 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 and women in ministry and transubstantiation? Is it the literal, you know, blood of, of Christ and the body of Christ? What if we just like kind of hit the brakes and we just invited people to know Jesus because it's for everybody always. And so God tells Peter, Peter, you do have this history, but remember, it's a new work. And in this new work, Jesus fulfilled the law now go give the good news to all people. And so, you know what God does for Peter immediately? Uh, he just has a tendency of doing this. He has Peter put this into practice immediately because he knows this is gonna be tough for Peter to do right away. And, and isn't that how God uses us as well? We are made uneasy or uncomfortable by something that he's prompted us to do but he's God, and, and so we trust. And it would be so nice if that were it, if that was it, if all he did was prompt us to go do something. You know what? Okay. One day, when, when you grow my soul a little bit more, I'll do that. But that's not what God does here, and in my experience, that's not really what he does in my life either. God wants us to practice what we preach. So he gives us opportunities to forgive people that we'd rather be mad at. He gives us opportunities to remain humble when we'd rather brag about ourselves. He gives us opportunities to love our enemies when we would rather rant, gossip, slander, and hate on them. God does something for Peter here. He gives Peter this new understanding. It's new to Peter. He gives him this new understanding. And then look what God does for him. Verse 17, while Peter was still wondering about the meaning of the vision, that's not in there by accident. He's, he's wrestling with this, okay? Then men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and they stopped at the gate and they called out asking if Simon was known as Peter, was staying there. Just so you know, 
Cornelius was an officer in the Roman army. He believed in God, but he was not Jewish. Uh, but an angel had appeared to him some verses earlier and told him, hey, go get Peter or, or send for Peter. <clears throat> Verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, that's not an accident. Peter is wrestling with this. I've only eaten clean, you know, my whole life, you know? I know some of you are CrossFitters. You eat clean all the time. Sure, okay. This is, this is, this is even more difficult for Peter. So while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. It is no accident that the Bible describes Peter wondering and having trouble about this new precedent a couple of times. Because in fact, we're going to see Peter actually has an issue with this later in Acts 15, we won't reach that point today, but just mental note right there. So Cornelius sent his men to find Peter. The Holy Spirit prompts Peter to go with them. Peter goes with them to Cornelius' home, which is full of non-Jewish people. Okay, are, are you following? Like, like the Lord gives Peter this, again, news to Peter, this new understanding of preaching and, 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 and his spirit is for all people now, everybody always, right? And so God immediately says, okay, now you're going to practice this. There's no sitting and thinking about it, contemplating, reflecting, meditating, prayer. God's just like, go now. It's time. You got the vision, go. And so he goes into Cornelius' home and it is full of non-Jewish people. And perhaps, this is, this is just me, perhaps to Peter's surprise, they all respond to the message of Jesus. Look at this in verse 34. Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Simply put, okay? Simply put, God loves all of his kids. He loves his kids. And, and what did verse 34 say? He shows no favoritism, no partiality, but one family. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. I love that phrasing because even the author is a little surprised, even on them. And just for practical purposes, just so you know, the circumcised believers represent the Jewish believers in Jesus who, they're circumcised, but they are, they are grappling with this idea that the good news really is for all people. And so that's why that distinction is made. Look at verse 46. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. And isn't that just a beautiful end to the story? Like that is so encouraging. Well, it it would have been, but Acts is not 10 chapters long. We, we, we have Acts 11 coming up. 
and that while these uncircumcised Gentiles were catching the Holy Spirit, the circumcised believers were, were catching a critical spirit. And, and it seems like this just comes with moves of the Spirit, doesn't it? It's like God pours out His Spirit, showing no favoritism, and for one reason or another, the haters are waiting to pounce. So go with me to Acts 11, because here it comes. Verse 1, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. While that verse by itself is inspiring, it's an inspiring testimony of God's goodness, Peter is not expecting to be greeted with a party over this. It's, this is more like a, a trip to the principal's office. He's, he's not dreading going back. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. And they said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And I don't know, we'll pause right there. I don't know if you've been around church, church life, or Christians, and I'm not trying to preach against anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, if you're around long enough for any length of time, you read this and you're kind of shaking your head. Because it seems like any time an issue comes up, people get upset, they will argue, they get defensive, they threaten to leave, and so on. And you can almost gather that this is the unfortunate direction that this is about to go. Instead of celebrating the fact that God is doing this incredible work, they're critical, and more or less ask Peter to defend himself. Verse 4. We're going to go through quite a few verses here, so just read with me. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is also called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved." As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as, as he had come on us in the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? That just needs to be highlighted. That needs to be underlined. Like this boldness and this, and this wisdom that Peter has. He's standing in front of his friends. And this is the, he, he set a precedent. 
for these, for these Gentiles to receive the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I would, I would more or less be a little anxious of mess up here. If like all of a sudden something was happening and it had never happened before. And then my friends then said, prove it. Make this make sense. What do you have to say about this? Defend yourself. For Peter to walk them through this and then to come to the conclusion, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? I think Peter made a pretty good case, don't you? He, he, he hit it on the head. But you can almost feel, you can almost feel the pin from the grenade is about to be pulled. So deep breath. Here we go. Verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, if you don't know this story all that well, you may not have been expecting such a response, a kind and gracious, charitable response. I don't know about you, but it's just not always been my experience with people who say they love and follow Jesus. And again, I'm not trying to throw stones at anybody. It's just, we are imperfect. You would agree? And when it comes to matters of faith, when it comes to matter of Jesus, we do feel protective at times. And, and I think there's some good that can come from that. But man, sometimes we get in our own way, don't we? And so this is kind of what is, 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 looks like it's taking place here, but maybe this happens to you. Maybe this, this happens to all of us. But sometimes when, when I am misunderstood or when I am misinterpreted, sometimes the harshest, the hardest, the most hurtful words, the most hurtful expressions that I've experienced, they come from people who say they love Jesus. And maybe this has also happened to you, where you were part of a church, you were part of a movement, you were part of a group, and it was really good for a while. But somewhere along the way, there's some church hurt. There was some spiritual drama, which, which is real, and it took place, and it just kind of left you wondering, what's wrong with me? I love Jesus, and I know I didn't get it right. I know I messed up. Maybe you're humble enough to recognize, like, yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't say the right thing. I didn't do the right thing, but man. And I know that this sort of hurt exists because that's the kind of hurt that causes hesitancy. It causes us to hesitancy, and then, and then hesitancy that, that causes us to hinder our own intimacy with God. Because in one season, we can be all in on, you, you could say, faith, God, Jesus, the church, all of that. But you walk through some darkness, you walk through some really hard times, and you come out the other end, and, and you're just completely dejected. And we begin to wrestle with big questions. Was it all a facade? Was it all just for this person? You know, I think it's normal to come up with these questions. 
Was this all about his ego? Was this all about what she wanted to accomplish? Like, and it's hurtful. And I don't mean to lay this on thick and thick and thick. I just think we've all experienced hurt in the name of the church. And I can't speak for all churches. And I can't speak for all of you. But I, I think I can speak for this one. Because our goal here is that you will find a safe place. You will find a place where you can grow with God. You can wrestle with your doubts. But you can find healing in your past, in your, in your church hurt. And you will be told of Jesus' radical love for you and how God is not finished with you yet. I simply believe that the church can still do so much good because of the story that we just read. That when we truly trust in the Lord, even the critics will come around. And that while we can disagree here, we can still be amazed by the power of God at work in the lives of those who love him. Look at this. When these guys chose to believe what was happening was truly of God, and it was truly God-honoring, all of this came together in the founding of the church in Antioch. This is the largest and most cosmopolitan city in this part of the Roman Empire. Look at verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for that guy who had just converted just experienced Jesus. He's still called Saul at this point. He's not even Paul yet. Verse 26, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples, look at this, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And to think, this part of our history started when Peter was humble enough to be corrected by God. Peter had all those convictions. He had what he understood God wanted, who he was to be. I mean, Jesus told him, right? You know, we're, we're going to start this church and you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to do great things. Peter could have had the biggest ego of anyone. He could have pulled the, the capital A apostle card on these people. I'm not a lowercase a, I'm a capital A. But he was humble enough still to be corrected by God over what we can look at now as a non-essential issue, a non-essential doctrine. And he was corrected. And he heard it, he received it, and then he preached it. He practiced it. We're, we're in our small group study right now, and something we're studying is how to walk with God, how to grow with God, if you will. And in my group, we were a couple weeks behind, so you all may, you're overachievers, you're ahead of my group, I don't know. But
but we recently discussed the importance of listening for the voice of God. And one point that the author made was the importance of hearing God tell us something we don't like. So if you're going to grow with God, I mean, newsflash, you are going to get it wrong sometimes. I have got it wrong plenty of times. Some of you said amen to that when I heard that, okay? You can say amen to yourself. I get it. But we simply will, right? We're going to get this thing wrong sometimes. But are we humble enough? Are we humble enough to hear the voice of God, to be corrected by, by the love of God? Or even by people who love us enough to tell us hard things. Peter was humble enough to hear God powerfully, clearly, and directly. And I believe some of us are desperate to hear from God just the same. But I think that we're still praying on our own terms. Could you imagine if Peter tried to do that and tried to keep this movement from the Gentiles? I think God just would have used someone else. But Peter knew and he said, who am I to get in the way? Because God is going to correct us. And, and when we've got it wrong, that leads to my only preaching point today. Here's, here, here's my point. Don't allow, number one, don't allow your allegiance to non-essentials or number two, don't allow the hurt from your past to blur your vision of what God wants to accomplish in your life today. I know as we followed through this story, it's kind of a hodgepodge of things, but if we can, if we can just simplify it down to a couple of things, I think that's where we're landing, is that we can, we can try to make a whole new religion on secondary doctrines, <laughs> secondary issues. We can be critical when we see the Spirit of God. I'm not saying don't be discerning. Of course be discerning. Stack it up against Scripture. Stack it up against, you know, your experiences with the Holy Spirit. You have to be discerning. But there's a fine line between being discerning and being critical. But also, sometimes when, when we've been hurt, when the followers of Christ harm, hurt, or hinder us. Maybe it doesn't happen right away, but give it enough time. We can begin to blur the lines. And it wasn't a person who hurt me, but it was, it was someone who represented God. And I want nothing to do with that God. Or if God really loved me, why would he let that person do that to me? Why would he put that person in authority? If God really was real, why, why this? Why that? And we can begin to spiral, okay? But here's my point. We can't allow those things to blur who God is and his purpose for our lives because he does love you. And as a good father, he hurts with you. But he wants to walk with you through those hurts and he wants to free you because God loves you dearly, deeply, and eternally. 